I am Joe Painter. This is What's the Story on the PeopleChronicles.com. Bethany Children's Home, I believe, in Heidelberg Township, is home to uh, somewhere a little over 100 of uh, temporarily housed children. Kids Peace in Bethlehem also has some children who made the journey that we have heard described by Emilia and Eduardo um, from South America through Mexico here. And it seems... After listening to you, it's a bit of a miraculous journey because uh, it is by the grace of God that they arrive here whole. Fair Absolutely. statement? Absolutely. The she's, she's, yes. Witnessing the horrors is, is, I'm sure, very different than hearing of them. Um, are they refugees? Yes and no. Um, I think they are. I think mm-hmm. that... The children, like the adults, I mean, the children are just sort of the, the tip of the iceberg because somebody who's 21 is fleeing the same, same situation as someone who's 17. Um, but they are fleeing. They're, they're trying to survive. Knowing the dangers, um, any, when, when you recognize the dangers of the journey, you have to say it's dire because no parent would send their child on that journey. If it wasn't dire. I've had migrants say to me, look, I can walk out my door and be killed any day in my hometown. Um, I don't know if I'll wake up tomorrow. I don't know. I don't know. So I might as well risk it for the chance of getting to someplace where I'll be safe. And I know that it sounds... that's different than I just want a better life. Yeah. That's different. I know that it sounds counterintuitive to people here sometimes. But I've spoken to a lot of migrants who one of the reasons they want to come here is because you can trust the authorities here, because it's safe here, because they won't be scared to send their kid to school here. It's my understanding that right now there are, um, I don't want to call it a case, children are going to court, the children who are here, if they're lucky enough to get legal representation, but they're seeking out these children, putting them in court to decide, do they stay or do they go? And and the United States has a certain percentage of refugee status. They're allowed to apply. How they sort through that, I don't know. Help us with that one. Well, that's why I said yes and no, because they are fleeing violence. However, the asylum laws in this country don't recognize that kind of violence. So um, to get asylum here, you have to be, they have to want to kill you because you are a member of a group, because of your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, your political affiliation, or because you're part of a certain class of people. Mm -hmm. If it's because they just want to kill you, that doesn't actually count for asylum. And gang violence in Central America is sort of a new phenomenon that doesn't really fit into, it doesn't really fit into the asylum rubric that we use in this country. So most Central Americans will eventually be sent back, even though their lives may very well be in danger and likely are, even though they may have siblings who've been killed. You told us of the story who the boy who was sent back and made the journey again, risking that he'll be sent back again. Absolutely. And that's what I hear from people all the time is they can be sent. They can send me back as many times as they want to. And I will turn around and come right back. We were, we were speaking to a Guatemalan family the other day who he, the, the father was deported five times. Um, he made the trip five times. So he was deported four times from Mexico but he was dumped across the border into Guatemala, didn't even go home to see his kids, turned right around and went back. 
If you want us to hear one voice, one child's voice, what would that voice say to us as we are being um, concerned about our infrastructure and, and the drain on our roads and our schools and our government systems? That's our concern. What voice would you want us to hear through all of that babble in the background? It's really hard for me to speak for anyone else. So it's hard for me to say what what they would say, even though I've spoken to hundreds of migrants at this point. Um, But this is about survival. This is about kids having a chance to grow up and kids having a chance to be kids. Instead of trying to deal with um, being recruited, forcibly recruited into gangs and murdering other kids, this is about kids trying to trying to have a chance to grow up in the world. And it seems like the least we can do is give them that chance. And what about you, Amelia? You've, you've dedicated a, a good portion of your, your adult life or all of your adult life in this uh, fight, as it were, for migrant rights. And I can see, talking with you, that there's a huge emotional toll. It's difficult. Why do you do it? What brought you here? What keeps you here? People ask me that question a lot. Um, since I am Anglo, I'm not mm-hmm. uh, Latino. Um, but it, honestly, it seems so obvious to me. It seems like there is this intense human rights crisis um, that our country is is on the front lines of this. It is. It seems to me like, you know, the the civil rights or the human rights battle of this generation, um, it seems to me like we should really stop judging a person's value or a person's worth or a a person's um, chance at survival based on where they were born. That uh, That seems like that shouldn't happen anymore to me. Um, so it seems like, of course, (laughs) of course I'll dedicate myself to this. Of course, this is what I will focus on, um, because there are, there are people dying and it's not a war. It's not far away. It's in our backyard and it's people dying because of policy. And that seems unnecessary. It's happening in the Sudan. Mm -hmm. It's happening in Iraq right Mm now. And people in the Sudan and Iraq also flee mm-hmm. for safety to bordering countries. Mm-hmm. And some countries, it's been said, have refugee camps the size of cities mm-hmm. I- here in the United States. Um, why this one? And I mean, is, is that the same? Uh, but this is the one you well, can Well, I have help? to say, uh, countries in the Middle East take mm-hmm. in a lot more refugees than the 50,000 children we're talking about. Absolutely. There are hundreds of thousands of people and, fleeing and we, Syria. We, we collectively in, in America think, you know, we're, we're being so ab- abused and our systems are being drained. When you, when you encounter somebody who feels that way, and there are many, mm-hmm. and, and that's okay. I'm respecting all opinions because there's lots mm-hmm. of perspectives. How do, you, how do you meet that? How do you soften that heart? Or do you soften that heart that says, no, come in the right way? You said there's no right way. Why not? There's no, there's no visa for poor people from Central America or Mexico. Why unless not? Unless they have a family member. Unless they have a, mem- a family member who's a citizen or a permanent resident, um, there's, no, 
There's no visa. So you cannot you cannot immigrate to the United States legally. People get caught up on that. Do no. it the right way. No, there's no there's no visa. There's no there are a limited number of visas that for a specific kind of work program to come mm-hmm. into the United States. So mm-hmm. if you're, you know, mostly male and a certain age. Um, but there, there there's a very few of them. Um, and it's a very complicated process to get them and it's uh, you're sort of pegged to a certain employer, which occasions all sorts of other problems. Um, but if you're a 16-year-old kid from Honduras, there's no visa. So your fight so far has been to go to Mexico, to walk the walk with the migrants, to do theses. You're you're going to get your doctoral program. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm an academic. I mean. I care very deeply, but, I, but I'm also an academic because I do think that that phenomena like this teach us a lot about the world and a lot about ourselves and a lot about um, policy, certainly. What has it taught you about yourself? You know, uh, I, get asked, I get asked a similar question from time to time, and I think um, the thing about all of this that it's really hard to understand from here, and even though I sort of maybe knew it in a theoretical way, is how much we take for granted mm. the fact that I hear if someone were breaking into my home, I would call the police without a second thought. Mm-hmm. Of course I would. If my car breaks down in the middle of the highway at night, I would call the police. In Central America and in a lot of parts of Mexico, that would be the last thing you would do. Because the police aren't safe? No. No, I never thought of it like that, quite like that. In El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, if someone's breaking into your home, if if someone's holding you at gunpoint, if someone's kidnapped you, if someone's threatened your family, you don't go to the police. What is the recourse? You flee. Mm. That's why you come to the United States. Is that why you fight this fight? I think it's just, I think it's right. I think that everyone should have a chance. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you, obviously it's very passionate too, how do you convince others to see what you see so that we can, more can fight the fight to, to, make, the, to make the world a just and better place? I think that, I think that when people really understand the situation, and I think it's hard coming from the United States to understand the levels of violence coming from certain communities in the United States, because I think there are communities here where they wouldn't feel safe calling the police, and I think that's probably important to, to recognize. But in a lot of communities, especially white, middle-class communities, mm-hmm. um, it's really hard to understand the levels of violence in Central America. It's really hard to understand how complete and extreme the normalcy of murder has become. I was at a funeral of a 15-year-old kid in Honduras who was murdered because he stole a bike. And and he had tried to get to the United States. He was kidnapped in Mexico. He went back to Honduras after he was released. And so his alternative was extreme poverty, which has a lot to do with it. And so he stole a bike. And the people who were somehow related to the people who owned the bike murdered him. And that was tragic. Wow. At the funeral, though, his family, they were, they were devastated. They were very, very sad. But they were also kind of resigned. Like, well, he was a thief. What did he expect? 
and no one, neither the owner of the bike. That's ultimate accountability there. Wow. Neither the owner of the bike nor the family members of the child considered calling the police. No one thought that this would be resolved by anybody else. We do take a lot for granted. Yeah, we do. What's next for you? Well, I do want to say one more thing. I think that people have to ask themselves the question. People who are up in arms about these kids coming here. If they were blonde kids with blue eyes from Ireland, (laughs) would you send them back? What would you say about them? Because I do think at the heart of this, there's a lot of questions about about race and language and nationality that are that boil down to a gut response to brown-skinned kids who speak Spanish. So, racism. Yeah. Is at the core. And there is a lot of animosity to anybody who doesn't speak English. Yeah. I don't think we've we've overcome that. No, not at all. Yet you said it's interesting because in in the beginning you said your grandmother did not have a good command of the English language, but that was how many years ago? Was she subjected to that kind of racism that these people are experiencing? People who come here with dark skin and can't speak English? You know, my dad remembers being, he was born in the United States. He's Italian-American. My dad remembers people in the tiny town in upstate New York where he grew up uh, calling him and his family WAPs. Mm-hmm. To the same degree of animosity or fear or bitterness or vengeance that we experience now. So this is an, a cycle that just hasn't ended. It changed cultures. You know, there's some really, really, really intense stuff written by Benjamin Franklin um, about the Germans. About Germans. And he rants and raves about how Germans don't want to learn in- English. How they have their own newspapers, how they eat their own food, they have their own churches, they don't want to assimilate, they don't want to integrate, they are um, dirty and smelly and keep to themselves about the Germans. Amelia, this is interesting because you're describing these things out of so many different time periods as an anthropologist. What does it say about the human race? Oh, I'm not prepared to make generalizations (laughs) about the human race. But I do think that um, we can see over time that when... Things are, when things are hard, and things are hard in the United States right now compared to how they've been in in the past, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, people often look for someone to blame, and I think politicians find it really easy to blame people who don't vote, who can't vote, Um, but I think a lot of times people make these divisions about who's us and who's them. But that isn't that isn't a, that isn't a, a fixed line between us and them, and it's fluid and it changes all the time. And I think it's time for it to change. So you're trying to erase the line. Yeah. Very best to you. <laughs> this has been a wonderful conversation, Eduardo. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it, and I appreciate your insight and you sharing the story. And I hope after you get the doctorate, do you plan to go back to Mexico? Do you plan to do the journey again? Yeah, I definitely plan to go back to Mexico. And hopefully you'll visit us again and let us know if anything's changed. (laughs) And hopefully it has. I appreciate it both very much. And very best to you. This is the peoplechronicles.com. What's the story with Joe Painter? We'll be back with another edition next week. See you then.